Uh, hello, gentlemen. I am joined today by Ricky Klein uh, to talk about a fun and different topic, uh, one that we don't normally talk about here on the show, but uh, I think it'll be I think it'll be quite interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about mead. If you've ever uh, read anything about Vikings or read Beowulf in high school or uh, just like alcoholic beverages in general, you may have heard of mead. Uh, you know, the, the, the old uh, English, you know, uh, would have their mead halls and they would, well, drink mead for just about every occasion. So uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Ricky. Um, it's so great to be with you. Um Absolutely. Yeah, Ricky is the head brewer, chief visionary officer, and co-founder of Gronfell. I hope I'm pr pronouncing that properly. Gronfell Meadery and Havoc Mead. And uh, by the way, he likes to drink mead as well. Uh, not a surprise there. So thanks for being with us. My absolute pleasure. So tell me a little bit about mead. I mean, uh, it's kind of on some people's radar. Like previously, I had heard about it. But I never really had it. Well, actually, I had. I'd, I'd had it like some uh, fancy dinner party. They had a bottle of it, and it was more like honey wine than it was true mead. Um, but tell us a little bit about mead. What is it? So mead is any alcoholic beverage where the primary fermentables are honey. Uh, so honey wine is a style of mead that is wine-like, so it would be higher in alcohol, almost always still, usually sweeter, though it doesn't have to be. And then the other major category is craft mead. Um, about 95, 96% of meaderies on earth make honey wine style. There are about 4 or 5% of us that make craft style. So craft has bubbles, comes in cans or beer bottles. It's you know under almost always under 7%. Um, I have a couple that are in the 9% and 10% range, but we really aim to be beer strength and sort of match that craft profile. Uh, mead itself is a beverage. Uh, as an amateur historian myself, I would never say it is the oldest intentionally fermented alcoholic beverage, though a lot of people make that claim. Uh, we're well into prehistory at that point. Uh, we know that it's at least 7,000 years old based on archaeological evidence, and it's probably co closer to 10 or 12,000 years old. Wow. Yeah. So some deep roots there. I, uh, I ordered some of this stuff the other day and um, man, is it delicious. It is not like, it's not like wine. Nope. Uh, it's not like beer. Nope. <laughs> it's like mead. It's hard to describe, but it's, but it's, it's kind of got a, a sweet flavor to it. Not surprisingly because of the honey. But yeah, but um, we ferment it completely dry. It's actually a cool thing. One of the reasons that when people have mead, they think of it as almost sickeningly sweet, is there's a compound natural to honey, vanilla, a few varietals of apples known as a flavor potentiator. And it makes whatever you're consuming taste sweeter than it is. Mm. So if you leave a lot, of, if you left the same amount of sugar in a mead as you leave in an IPA, so most people don't think of IPAs as being sweet, but if you left even that much sugar, it would taste cloying because of that flavor potentiator. Wow, interesting. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me about the fermenting process. I mean, there's like, how do you ferment honey? I mean, because honey, they you know they they have they found in like archaeological sites and stuff. You know, honey that's thousands of years old and it's still 
practically right. good, you know, you can yeah. eat it. Um, so how do you ferment it? Right. So there are a handful of compounds that help honey stay shelf stable for millennia, um, defense in A, defense in B. Uh, but really it's, um, it's as simple as this. White sugar in a bag does not ferment in your closet. When you pour it, pour water into it, it will start fermenting. So it's the water. bacteria, wild yeast, intentional yeast uh, needs a certain amount of water and sugar to survive. Not unlike uh, the human consumers as well. Yes, yes. So, so, is, so adding the water is the magic ingredient. Yep. And then you can do fully wild fermentations. All raw honey naturally has wild yeast in it. Uh, we have a few products where we do that. It's uh, always riskier, um, but those, that's sour beer. Sour beer is done that way. So we have two sours, and then the rest we use our own uh, strain of yeast. Okay, interesting. Uh, so uh, there's different kinds of honey, right? I mean, I, right. You know, back in the day, I used to think it was just, you know, the little golden stuff in the honey bear. Uh, but uh, but uh, as I've grown older, I realize there's quite a few varieties. What kind of varieties of honey do you use? What do you, how do you choose those? So we use exclusively wildflower honey from a blender in New Hampshire. And the reason for that is basically we're doing volumes that uh, I did. Let's see, I just jumped off the canning line and we now consider a small batch, a thousand gallons in a day. Wow. We're not brewing that every day, but that's, you know, that's how many cans just came out of that machine, 8,000 cans. Um, so finding a varietal honey that you can get in those quantities is very difficult. Uh, so what we use is a wildflower honey that is blended. Uh, it's actually really clever. What they do is they switch which hemisphere they're pulling from every six months so that it's fairly consistent in flavor, but they're not disrupting the natural life cycle of the bees by moving the bees around. They're merely getting the honey from regions in which it's fall or spring harvest. Interesting, interesting. So, you know, being primarily honey, we talked a little bit about the flavor. Um, is it really high sugar content? No, very, very low. Lower than almost any other beverage you can find on the market because we ferment all of the sugars out. Wow, that's, that's cool. Um, so how did you discover this, uh, this idea of craft mead? Because, you know, like I said, it's not, it's not like on the alcoholic radar is something that tons of people are looking for. I mean, to uh, give you an idea, if you Google define craft mead, an article I wrote is what comes up as Google's definition. Like craft mead is not that old as a concept. Uh, there are some people to market before I was making it. Um, one of my favorites is bee nectar. Uh, Bee Nectar makes some great, great craft meat, and they really inspired me. Um, who else? There, there are a handful in the country. Uh, Charm City out of Maryland, they came out about the same time we did, making a craft style. But my path to this was I was getting a religion and philosophy degree in Copenhagen uh, for part of my degree work, and there was, uh, everyone talked about mead. Everybody talked about mead. It would be like coming to the United States and hearing about apple pie, except it would be like people saying, oh, no, 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 no. We haven't made apple pie in a hundred years. It's just, you know, something we say. I mean, mead is in Danish Christmas carols to give you an okay. idea. So yes. I just became fascinated by it. And I was studying um, what are called now pre-Christian traditions in um, Denmark. And um, 
that basically is every religious tradition that we know of that happened before about the end of the Viking Age in 1100. So meat is a big part of their culture, uh, the Vikings, and it became a fascination. So I came back to the United States. I started home brewing and um, I was in a situation where I didn't have a lot of space and brewing beer takes, you know, to do it on the stove. And if you want to do all grain, you have all these contraptions. So I thought, you know, why not try mead? My first batch was terrible. Um, <laughs> but to pay for my master's degree, I ended up getting this job at a, a up and coming brew shop in the Midwest where I was finishing up my degree work. And I was the only person who regularly made mead. So I became this expert because I had to. Every question about mead came to me. And Eventually, my wife and I knew we wanted to move back to Vermont, and the decision was, you know, what do we want to do when we get there? And after, you know, like 11 different business models, we came up with a meadery. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a cool drink because I, I feel like a Viking when I'm drinking it. I feel like, or, or maybe, like, maybe I'm in a pub in Middle Earth or something like that where it just takes you back in time because it is such an ancient ancient drink one of the um, coolest accolades i've ever gotten is valkyrie's choice when we first came out with it the head of pre-christian traditions for the university of copenhagen and dis uh came to our meadery in vermont from from denmark wow. and he said that it, other than the bubbles because um it's funny you don't think of carbonation as being a technology but it is um carbonation technology wasn't invented until about the 15th or 16th century um, but he said, other than the bubbles and the lack of angry bee parts, um, <laughs> it's about as accurate to Viking ceremonial mead as you can get. And the wow. reason for that is everyone thinks of these 16 and 17 and 18% meads as being historically accurate. We didn't have the yeast that could do that back then. There was, there was a maximum amount of alcohol the yeast could handle without intention, more call it intentional breeding, but um, intentional selection. Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, how's, how's it been? How's business been? I mean, uh, has there been a ton of interest in this? So, uh, we're going on eight years now. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been rough. Um, you know, <laughs> you'll hear that from a lot of small businesses. We decided, uh, we have some family investment, but we didn't want to take on a lot of loans. So we started with what we could and we were, you know, in a sense, there are four or five companies out there, but we were all literally inventing a market segment in a very, very noisy market. And there was a point at which we did 102 tastings in a year throughout New England. We had someone out there standing for hours, you know, just giving out samples because I, you know, I've been at this for eight years. We are one of the top selling brands in Vermont right now uh, through our distributor. But I still hear people every day, never heard of it, never heard of mead. And then I do the rundown. I go, uh, have you read The Lord of the Rings? Have you read Harry Potter? You had to read Beowulf in high school, right? Um, that doesn't really help. So first years were a slog then due to some um, <clears throat> curious bureaucracy in the state of Vermont. They made the decision that uh, breweries couldn't have tasting rooms. We could only have restaurants that served our own product. So... We scrambled, uh, spent money that we did not have, uh, turned our tasting room into a mead hall. And that just was this sudden surprise success. Um, we, we did all Viking 
Scandinavian only ingredients uh, pre 13th century. And I, the only problem with it was I was suddenly working 80, 90 hour weeks because I was the head chef, also the head brewer. And my wife's the CEO. And then we had a baby. So uh, that, but that, that was, that was a good time, but we eventually got lost our, our lease on that space. More accurately, someone bought it out from under us in the nicest way possible by giving us a big check to move out. And we moved to our new home, our forever home as a brewery. And it's, it was a really, really, really tough year. There's a huge amount of market saturation. Um, I mean, when you realize we're only eight years old, but we're older than two thirds of the craft breweries in the country. And that's how many breweries have started up in the last decade. And then with the pandemic, uh, just, it was a mess. We saw, we actually saw for the first time in the history of our company, a negative sales week. Uh, we sold negative 12 cases because our distributor allowed all ski mountains that have been shut down from the pandemic to sell their product back. So we actually saw a negative sales week. And like a lot of small business owners, we sat down. The first thing we did was triage. You know, first, first priority, don't lose the house. Second priority, don't lose the building that our business is in. And then we sort of went, we had to go through our staff and go, you know, like, if, you know, what, what order do we have to furlough people in? And then we got really lucky. We had started the process of direct uh, shipping in January, it's a very, very uh, heavy burden. I mean, you have to apply to every single state. Um, we have a woman on our staff. She graduates from college next week and we've already pulled her on full time. Uh, she's putting in a hundred hours of compliance paperwork per month just to ship to the 23 states we're shipping to. And if you know we didn't have her, we couldn't have done this. But I mean, I'm looking at the stack of folders she put together yesterday. It's like almost up to the monitor, the screen monitor. It's nuts. Wow. She's a keeper. She is a keeper. <laughs> She's in the back pocket, packing boxes right now, taking my, my slot on that ship. So we, we've seen a lot of success um, through online shipping. Uh, one of our, two of our distributors in particular have done a really, really good job of supporting their accounts. I mean, that's one of the nicest things I've seen through this whole pandemic is we wrote an email to every single account we have in all of New England and said, you know, you may have seen online that we started shipping. We're not going to ship to the state you're in. You know, you guys, you know, like Massachusetts, I've been distributing there for three years. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to ship to people's homes. I'm, if they ask, I'm going to tell them to come get it from you. And the number of people that have done that for us also um, is, is pretty amazing. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like, you know, despite some struggles, you guys are on the, on the upswing. Uh, we're just starting to spread. I, I heard about you. And uh, to be honest, I don't even remember how I did. It was probably like a Facebook ad or something. I know yeah. I did see a Facebook ad. So, yep. so it's working. Yeah, you know, it's been so funny. I mean, as I told someone the other day, it took us seven years to get to 4,000 likes on Facebook, three weeks to get to 5,000, and one week to get to 6,000. Like, all of a sudden, I just forget how big the rest of the country is because Vermont yeah. has, like, how many, how many people are in Tulsa? Uh, about a million. Okay, so you have almost twice as many people in Tulsa alone as we have in the entire state of Vermont. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like... Right. And so that's what I've been selling to you. Massachusetts has a lot of people, but that's like the only places we really, really move product. 
Yeah. And we're not even in New York City, so it's it's just been wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's that's incredible, and it's a it's a great success story. And uh, guys having a vision and executing it, and um, it sounds like you're doing a great job. So, um, as far as uh, you know, uh, where people can get this um you know you said you mentioned online yep. um could you go to your local liquor store and say hey i want to get this stuff uh would they, would they do in new england uh you can go to any any liquor store and ask for it if you're anywhere else in the country we can only do direct ship right now because you have to have a distributor in each and every state you're in except for washington uh, okay. dc which is the wild west of america i could like roll up to a bar with a u-haul of mead in washington dc <laughs> uh, but everywhere else you're required to have a distribution channel and that comes from the end of prohibition uh, and it makes a lot of sense uh, it really does help keep people safe but if you if you want us in your state you can always ask and that's the the best way for us to get distributors is for people to ask for it um but yeah well that's great uh so so what's next i mean i see you guys have some some different flavors uh you got some mead mixed with green tea and lemon oh, which uh, i intend to try next that so, sounds really I interesting would, i don't know when how quickly you get your um your podcasts up but we brewed what we thought so that's a uh, spring and summer seasonal here in vermont i say spring it actually snowed on my way into work uh <laughs> and um but we brewed what we thought was like a three or four month supply uh, and we have three four packs left so as pippin says in lord of the rings i'm getting one so yes I will make sure it gets out there. Uh, so the biggest thing, actually, this is one of those weird fortuitous, I mean, so thank goodness we were working on direct shipping, but the biggest project we've been working on for years, the entire mission of our company is to bring back feasting. Uh, as we say, the world, a lot of people overeat and a lot of people go hungry, but very few people feast and very few people fast. And up here, I live in a 210-year-old house that can only be heated by a wood fire. You know, seasonality is not an option for my family. We came downstairs the other day, it was 42 degrees in the house and you build a fire and you warm it back up. And that sort of rhythm of the year is something that I think a lot of people lack in, in many cultures, um, but especially in the Western world right now. And we were working on doing uh, feasting program to help people gather together to really feast again uh right as the pandemic hits so we put a pin in that program but that's that's the next really big thing we want to work on is that aspect of our company mission well tell me why that's important i, I love that concept uh, uh there's a word i use a lot uh conviviality mm -hmm. i think it's a great word that communicates uh the importance of celebration but um, tell us a little bit about that. Why is that an important part, part of your vision? So uh, my background is I was actually uh, weeks from being a Unitarian Universalist minister uh, before leaving that and I guess becoming a professional drinker. Uh, not that many, many religious figures don't also act the role of a professional drinker, but the I came from a Jewish household, Unitarian and Jewish. 
and I love the Jewish holidays. I'm the only, as far as I know, the only member of my family that still fasts for all the Jewish holidays. I love that rhythm of the year and the fact that other people see fasting as an inconvenience. Um, I've never really felt of it. I've never really thought of it as an inconvenience. It helps give structure to my life and feasting is so, so important for humans. Every single culture we know of, every single one, there are, as far as I know, zero exceptions have some aspect of feasting in their culture. And the only places where we don't see it anymore are, it's in the Western world where every day you could you know, eat the foods that you would traditionally have eaten at a feast. And having that seasonality, having that available to this, to every member of your family, every member of your community, having that structure, especially as fewer people attend um, religious worship where the structure is imposed, I thought it was really, really important. There are rules in a feast. And while people love to balk against rules, rules are what give your life its boundaries. Yeah, well, I'm Catholic and all about rules. <laughs> but I uh, know, I'm just kidding. But we but yeah. we really do, you know, have a liturgical year for a reason. Yeah. And there's beautiful it's you know, it's kind of fallen out of favor, but there's still a good number of, of Catholics that observe this, this idea of ember days where there would literally be, you know, three or four days, I'm sorry, three days, um, where you fast uh at the turn of the seasons. Um yeah. and it's number one a way of just kind of asking god's favor on the harvest that kind of thing or if you're planting seeds in the spring you know um, just kind of fasting to observe that and ask god's blessing on it but also just to uh as you said reinforce the importance of feasting um, yep. because feasting um doesn't have much meaning unless you have fasting um mm-hmm. there's a contrast there that makes them both more enjoyable. It's kind of like resting. If all you do is lay on the couch all day, you don't really appreciate resting. If you yeah. go outside and break your back in the field for 12 hours, okay, or working on your yard for 12 hours, cutting down trees or something, you're going to appreciate your rest that much more. Um, there's Absolutely. Those contrasts and rich. And the, the, the background of all we do is, you know, I love I mean, I, I, I drink everything, beer, wine, cider, sake, you know, I love everything. The reason we ended up with mead is it was the last beverage that we could think of that we got a chance to write the story. Mm-hmm. And yes. there were people out there making honey wines that, you know, ex- what I thought was exorbitant prices, absolutely absurd prices. Uh, and they'd say, you know, well, it's, it's expensive, but just, you know, drink it at your wedding. And I was like, yeah, but sometimes you want to have a feast on a Tuesday. And I lived in Des Moines, Iowa for years. And I, it's, it was a really, really tough to move away because I had one of those houses where I just cooked for 10 people every night. And some mm-hmm. night it would just be me and my wife. And sometimes I'd have to whip up extra things. People yeah. just show up. And I love that culture and need became me and the fact that I had you know six draft lines in my house in general uh became a part of that and I also hold that you don't need alcohol to have a feast you do need to have food um but you have to have 
a reason. And one of the strongest reasons is an initial fast. Um, and then the fast itself has a reason. It, it, it builds throughout the year. I mean, this year I had to break fast for Yom Kippur by myself. And that was really weird. Um, we did Passover by Zoom. And that yes. was weird. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we're all going to be that much more excited about spending time with our friends. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think too of uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, GK Chesterton uh, has a, had a rule of drinking and he says, never drink because you're sad, uh, but, but always drink because you're happy. And like drinking can't make you happy, but it can enhance the, the happiness that you already have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, it's already a joyful thing to be together with friends, but when you can share a good drink together, it just enhances that experience so much more. And, uh, you know, that's really the joy of, of alcohol. It's really not an escape from our misery uh, as if that were, you know, that were possible. It doesn't really solve any problems, but it, but no, it it's, enhances it's called a lubricant. It. it makes whatever is you're feeling you, you either feel it more or faster. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I love that idea of feasting and seasonality as well. I mean, that's something that is, is important to us and our family. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, of being in tune with the world, uh, there's a philosopher, German philosopher, Joseph Pieper, um, that, that writes a beautiful book called In Tune with the World. And it's all about how um, feasting and fasting really through different periods of the year, um, brings us in tune with kind of the cycles of the earth and and um you know in winter it's kind of a time of darkness and withdrawal you know and we want to be cozy in our little houses like you said with a roaring fire uh but then in but in spring and summer it's like this exultant time where we we want to be outside we want to it's an expansive time you know and yeah. um i mean I, I have friends in the city and the idea that i sleep nine to ten hours a night during the winter and seven hours a night during the summer is just so radical to them because their year doesn't change. I mean, it's cold or warm, but it's all electric lighting. It's all, you know, it's, it's really weird for me. I've lived it for a couple months of my life, but I just, just can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love the vision that you have at Grownfell Meadery. Um, and I can attest that it's ex excellent mead, uh, kind of unlike anything that you'll find just about anywhere else. Um, so I encourage everyone who's listening, uh, check it out. Uh, order some if it's available in your state. If it isn't, request it. Um, can you spell the name for us, though? Because it is spelled. I, I can. And I'm going to have, have you figured out yet what it means? It's a terrible play on words. No, I, I don't. I don't know. Okay. So it's uh, it came to me in the middle of the night, which is funny because uh, it's Old Norse, and I, I speak a handful of languages, but Old Norse is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> but it's Grun is green and Fell is mountain. It's literally just Vermont in Old Norse. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm that clever. Uh, it's G R O E N as in Nancy, N as in Nancy, F as in Frank, E L L. Okay, G R O. E-N-N-F-E-L-L. -L. You got it. Excellent. Well, uh, get, a, get a pack or two or three or more uh, of Grunfeld mead. You will not be disappointed. It will take you back to the Shire or maybe to uh, the, the mead hall right before Grendel breaks in. Um, so uh, check it out. You won't be disappointed. Uh, Gronfeld, G-R-O-E-N-N-F-E-L-L. -L, and I'll be sure to put the link to that website in, uh, in the show notes.
So thank you so much for being with us, Ricky. It's, thank it's you so much, Dan. This was great. Yeah.